0: The knife-sharpening man biked through our neighborhood only once or twice a summer. The bells hanging from his bike announced his arrival. In a frenzy of activity, my mother would gather anything with a doll blade from the kitchen and call me downstairs. Once adorned with all manner of knives and scissors, I'd head outside to hear for the chimes and begin chasing after him. The Cutler breathed new life into whatever we gave him. And though his work was good, in all those years, I never saw him sharpen any knives but ours. And though they never met, it seemed both the Cutler and my mother had an understanding, an unspoken creed of loyalty. The Cutler to his vocation and the few he served. My mother to her belongings and the craftsmen who maintained them. Both acting as devoted members of a shrinking group of people united by an unwillingness to loosen their grip on a disappearing rhythm of life. A dedication to a worldview where possessions are not devalued to justify upgrades or discarded so they can be replaced. Where enterprise is eschewed in favor of attachment. It's not immediately obvious, and we may not like to admit it but our relationship with our personal belongings can be as complicated as the ones we have with other people. We imbue possessions with traces of ourselves. We see aspects of our identity that are realized through our objects, museums of the self. The stories attached to them are our stories, providing evidence of our existence, a biographical narrative, like the potter whose handprints cling forever to their creations. Henry Sendak, the author and illustrator best known for the much beloved Where the Wild Things Are, was wise to the life giving magic we breathe into the objects we cherish. Once during an interview, Sendak took a small pebble from his pocket and said, This is a friend. I found him on a beach in Italy in 1953. He goes with me on all my trips. Confessing this sounded somewhat strange, Sendak was reassured by the interviewer that indeed it wasn't peculiar at all, as they also had an old lighter and three pipes they felt were old companions as well.
1: I'm surrounded by things that uh, I keep around for good luck charms or keep me company. Over my light table is a pegboard, which I've had for many, many years, and it acts as a kind of uh, talisman or good luck charm. There are specific objects on it, which some of them I've had for Many, many years, there's a brontosaurus, which my nephew built for me, which can't be touched because if it were, it would dissolve instantly. There are things from Europe, toys, which I love. There's a handmade puppet I bought in Munich, almost anything you can think of. Speaking of toys, I have some here. My brother is a mechanical genius and put them together. And these are little fairy tales. This is a Little Red Riding Hood. It has a lever which, when pulled out, causes Little Red Riding Hood to collapse in mortal terror, the wolf to rear his hideous head above the blanket. These toys are a family affair. Uh, We spent the whole summer, summer of 1948, making these toys. We are very happy about them. They are constantly being repaired because of hard use put to them by nephew, niece, and assorted children in the family.
0: Notably, these items aren't particularly expensive or glamorous. His old clay model of a dinosaur wasn't coveted by Sotheby's for auction. They were treasured because Sendak regarded them as an integral part of his life and his art. They roused his imagination, totems of inspiration that made their way into his illustrations, and, as was so evident in his voice full of pride and amusement for his objects kept the spirit of his loved ones and precious memories close as he tinkered away in his studio day after month after year. It's an innately human impulse to archive one's life by keeping possessions which serve as witness to it and its evolutions. Objects which remind us of our personal histories. And now, a timeline of my mom's life constructed through her few belongings. The forbidden books in her secret library she kept during the Iranian Revolution. The small glass box remover her favorite aunt gave her while she was engaged to my dad, the leather briefcase she took to work during her first job as a magazine editor, a fixed-speed bicycle we bought the first week we moved to Canada, the calligraphy pens she bought with my grandpa the year. Many years or thousands of miles separate her from the places these items come from. She acquired them in a land she'll probably always regard as her true home. But without these tokens from a past life, what would be left of that world except her fading memories? What rootlessness would replace the sense of time and place they now anchor? How else would that vast, unsolvable separation be bridged? These items act as keys that unlock the mystery of my deeply private mother. I take inventory of them because they remind me of who she is, where she comes from, what she values enough to keep, and when she passes them on to me, they form a bridge that binds us beyond the intangible. It's an act of love to maintain those items which you so carefully acquired over the years or which were entrusted to you to enjoy and make great use of them, but also to act as their steward until it comes time to pass them on. Upon closer inspection, I suspect the declining quality of the objects available for purchase in stores and their presumptive disposability mirrors a declining quality and precariousness within my own personal relationships. An excess of available options and my propensity for drawing comparisons has long propelled my never-ending search for the most perfect object, the most perfect person, and what is there to show for it but a drawer full of clothes given to me by former friends and lovers on occasions where an afternoon's visit stretched into days and nights of our inseparability until, having grown unsatisfied, I let them go. The drawer a graveyard for my relationships. Within it, the evidence of my selfish nature. How to measure the depths of my regret? When I'm reminded that these mementos outlived my connection to the people to whom they belonged, how many more times will I trivialize my losses, either material or emotional, with the unshakable belief that the best is still yet to come? Does my readiness to replace items and buy them anew when they could be repaired echo the way I dispose of people at the first blush of discord? Why do I expect the same perfection from people as I do my belongings? I wonder if I'd let myself get away with it so often if there was some mediating presence, a greater ideal, which forced me to interrogate my petulance. If family artifacts from my more virtuous ancestors decorated my home, would a spirit of obligation or sense of duty to their good name allow me to mistreat people this way? Would the weight of permanence allow me to champion self-deception as a way of life? Nothing is without its consequences. Is it even possible for the mind to escape unscathed when each day it's bludgeoned over and over with the title of consumer in a world comprised entirely of goods? I realize now I've been a consumer of people nearly as long as I've been one for objects, unwittingly. I dehumanized flesh and blood which stood before me. I dream of an antidote. I wonder what it might be. My natural inclination is to believe that it's craftsmanship. Handiwork used to be the default method of production. It protects against the perilous forces of indifference. It's a sacred thing. Craftsmanship is one's being poured into the creation of something which may be treasured long after its maker has perished. One feels the weight of the effort and time the creator expended so he could possess the item. There is a compulsion to honor them and the fruits of their work. There is a pang of guilt, shame even, if we were to throw away that which represents a life's work. Don't we treat the things we know we'll have for life with greater tenderness, more forgiveness? Is it difficult to imagine the disappearance of craftsmen, replaced by endless streams of indistinguishable machine-made forms, made everything appear less valuable? The absence of connection between what exists and whom brought it into being. Is it any wonder it's easy to leave them behind? Easy come, easy go, as they say. When we acquire an object, we breathe new life into it. We give it a home. These belongings become a family of their own of sorts. We protect them from the brutal apathy of the outside world. And just like any family, the loss of one member is mourned by all those who survive them. When a cherished item is lost, its absence pierces a void in one's life. A missing umbrella may be replaced and its successor may effectively stop any imposing raindrops from falling on your head, but never again will they drip off the spindles of your old favorite umbrella, the one you purchased on a sunny day at 18, a symbol of your blooming adulthood and your ability to, as they say, plan for a rainy day. One may spend years even the remainder of their life quietly grieving the subtle perfection of that which once was but is no longer there, like a phantom limb sheathed by a prosthetic, useful, sure, but irrevocably foreign. What happens when the entirety of one's belongings are gone? What are the effects of disruptions of this magnitude? Unlike individual objects, the reverberations of loss on a grander scale can be felt by everyone. During my hunt for an apartment to sublet in a coastal town in Slovenia, I experienced the existential shock of reaching for something that was no longer there. I looked for a place that reflected the town's rich history and lack of pretension. I wanted a sense of continuity between the classical architecture just beyond the doors of my would-be temporary home. A modest place with traditional furnishings. What I found instead was an endless sea of the dreaded Airbnb aesthetic. You know the one. Monochrome. Minimalist. Bus of the Buddha. Fake plants. And absolutely nothing to suggest humans with actual souls had ever laid eyes on it, let alone ventured inside. It came as a shock when I realized every city, and now little towns, were being ravaged by the spreading cancer of non-placeness. A glut of totally banal, generic offerings, stripped of anything which connect them to the place and people where they reside. The disappearance of objects capturing the spirit of localness, of a place truly embodying itself. But the sameness makes it accessible, comfortable, we know what to expect say its defenders. The cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Leave sterile homogeneity to airports where sameness is necessary for the sake of tight connections. Give me tapestry and chipped plaster, a sink that whistles, foggy glass, chipped corners and frayed edges. Give me imperfections forged by hand, give me something to sink my teeth into. If you could have found out what that rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything.
1: No, I don't think so. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. Missing
0: piece. Montreal being a bike city, my mom loaned me hers when I moved into my first apartment during undergrad. It was an old white Japanese fixed gear with drop handles wrapped in blue bandages. My parents and I bought the bike at a yard sale we passed during a walk we took one perfect spring day in Toronto, 1999. And then there we were, the bike and I, in Montreal. You're the best bike ever. My constant companion. The best bike ever. (coughs) Let's lock you up nice and safe. Sleep tight, little angel. Disappeared. It was well and truly gone, and I was devastated. What was I going to do? What could I do? Bikes get stolen every day. Never heard from again. My bike was probably already in the clutches of some underground bicycle trafficking syndicate who moved stolen bikes between cities so they could list them on Craigslist without detection. My bike. Why did I do that? Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. It's my own fault. I should have been more careful. God, what else? What am I going to do now? Oh God fucking would just take someone's bike, piece of oh shit. God, I can't believe it happened to me. My bike. I bet he's lonely. What if he's scared? He's all alone. Can't trust a bike thief. Does he miss me? In the dark. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope they love that bike to death. I just want him to be happy. They're so lucky to have him, they have no idea. Appreciate. Love him so much. Best bike ever. From then on, I poured the swell of feeling coursing through me into little prayers for the bike and whoever it was with. I ached with a simple desire the bike be as loved and cherished as it had been with us. I had to walk to class that morning and left my apartment still sullen, the sting of the disappearance still fresh. Then suddenly, to my total disbelief, there it was, my bike. Two days after it went missing, and there was a rolled sheet of paper tucked between a brake. I'm so sorry. 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 SOS. 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 Sad face. Sometimes I still can't believe this actually happened. It was, and still is, obscene to be reunited with a stolen bike, because it was returned, voluntarily, with an explanation and an apology? I hold this divine little incident very close to me. It sustains an idea that one's connection to cherished belongings isn't childish folly, naivety, or worthy of derision. Rather, it is something profound. It's delicate, but it's deserving of our consideration. The return of the bike is just one example among many of the sublime connection it's possible to have with our things, all that which makes life so strange and sensational. It is finally finding Volume 1 to your Volume 2 of a rare printing of Proust's In Search of Lost Time, after years of self-imposed torment. That's a lie. It was pretty enjoyable, actually spent searching bookstore shelves all because you refused to admit defeat and just order the bloody thing online. A bookend to an endeavor you dramatically titled Lost Time in Search of Proust. It is finding a note tucked inside a shoe in a thrift store. A story of where they'd been worn, written by its previous owner whose feet had inexplicably grown too big for them. Oh, to cast off these tiresome chains of irony and constant suspicion. There's so much more to be felt when we allow ourselves. All those plates in the cupboard and no one coming to dinner. To have everything but love nothing. Indulge no one. Give care, friends. Give care. But why don't we rest a while? Come, take this chair. You can tell me about your famous blue raincoat the one that's torn at the shoulder. Came in place
1: of rain, lost my heart when I fought.